0: i and welcome to The Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. Six years ago, the British Army formed a unit to defend and preserve some of the world's greatest cultural treasures at risk of theft or destruction in conflict. The plan was perhaps in part inspired by the role carried out by the Monuments Men, who recovered tens of thousands of priceless pieces of art from the Nazis during the Second World War, and whose story was made famous in the George Clooney film of the same title. Buildings and monuments have become collateral damage, and artwork and artifacts looted for centuries and continue to be at risk and lost in current and recent conflicts. In some cases, historical and religious sites are actually targeted. For example, excavated areas of the ancient city of Nimrud in Iraq were bulldozed by ISIS. Mosques in Mosul were blown up and some of the Roman ruins in Palmyra destroyed as part of a deliberate campaign. Lieutenant Colonel Tim Perbrick a tank commander in the Gulf War, was tasked with setting up the British Cultural Property Protection Unit as part of the Army's 77th Brigade. And this year is the 70th anniversary of the 1954 Hague Convention for the Protection of Cultural Property in the Event of Armed Conflict. Tim, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast and to find you to talk about such an interesting subject
1: Well, thank you very much for the invitation.
0: You're very Um, welcome. It will be a painless process, I I promise you. (laughs) You've recently returned from Estonia, where I gather you've been doing some work with UNESCO. And a bit of that work was on cultural property protection, wasn't it?
1: It was. I was in Estonia as the head of media and communications for the UK forces deployed with NATO in Estonia, where we're there to deter an attack on nato and to reassure other nato members that the united kingdom stands by our article 5 obligations which are an attack on one is an attack on all and i designed this course at unesco last year to train the ukrainian armed forces as to what they should do to address the issues of cultural property protection in the current conflict in ukraine and i thought there might be an opportunity to help the Estonian defense forces while also helping UNESCO at the same time. That's helping UNESCO by improving the course, which you get to do when you deliver it, and to help the Estonian, Latvian, and Lithuanian armed forces, as it turned out, by giving them some information about cultural property protection, delivering the course, and the hope that it would work for them. And we thought initially that there would be five of us sitting around a table having a quiet conversation for a couple of days, and it turned out that it grew arms and legs, and we had 30 students. UNESCO was involved delivering the course. And we had five officers from Austria and France, Netherlands and the UK who helped come over and deliver it. And we worked very closely with the Estonian Cultural Ministry. And I like to think that we did a reasonable job and that the people who attended the course got some benefit out of it.
0: I think we should start with the basics if we may, Tim. What exactly is cultural property?
1: Cultural property in legal terms is defined by Article 1 of the Hague Convention, and it is things like monuments, fine arts, archives, archaeology, groups of buildings, collections, and so on. A range of different artworks, and those can be mobile, in other words, like a picture, a painting, you can pick it up and run away with it, or a a structure, a building which you obviously can't, or a monument that is fixed to the ground as well.
0: Can you give us an example of perhaps some of the greatest losses in history of monuments and sites and pieces perhaps?
1: Well, there've probably been a huge number to work through, but perhaps if we stick with something more modern, most of us can recollect a few years ago when ISIS were in control of parts of Iraq and Syria and they destroyed mosques and works uh, such as the uh, Palmyra buildings were blown up and statues were smashed and other things were looted. That's a a modern example of it. You can look back at the Second World War, at the damage done to cultural property by both sides, because you can use military necessity as an argument that you need to destroy cultural property for military purposes, and that's legal. But then there was the quite astonishing amount of looting that happened in the Second World War by the Nazis from across Europe.
0: And what kind of things were looted? Were they things that you could take away pieces of artwork?
1: In the main, they were works of art. Hitler was keen to build a museum at Linz, which would show the artwork that he approved of, and Goering was an avaricious collector of works of art for his estate at Karin Hall. Those were the two principal Nazi thieves during the period 1939-45, and even before. Many of those artworks ended up in mines in Germany and Austria to be recovered by the monuments, fine arts and archives military personnel who worked with our armies in Western Europe to identify, locate and then recover and restitute those works of art back to the countries from which they'd been stolen. Of course, many of the owners of those works of art had been killed in the Holocaust.
0: Was that the centre of the monuments men work that, of course, a lot of us are only really aware of because we watched the George Clooney film?
1: The monument's men, from my perspective, seem to develop from three different places in the world at almost the same time. In North Africa, Brigadier Sir Mortimer Wheeler went to Leptis Magna and he was a very senior British archaeologist at the time, but he was also uh, serving brigadier in the army in the desert. And he had seen some of the damage that had been done to Leptis Magna and thought that we should be doing something about this. And the kind of things he did were putting places out of bounds, arranging tours for soldiers to go around and requesting resources so that he could put the local custodians of cultural property back in control of it so that they were managing it properly. In London, Lieutenant Colonel Sir Leonard Woolley was the archaeological advisor to the war ministry. And he also thought that as we were moving our armies in the inevitable invasion of Western Europe, that we would encounter an awful lot of cultural property and that our armies should be briefed how to meet the challenges of respecting and protecting that cultural property so we didn't inflict any more damage than was absolutely necessary and in the united states the harvard group of academics was also thinking about how they should address the issues of cultural property when the american armies also invaded across the channel and went across northern europe and into germany and the armies were going up italy so they were going to be encountering some of the most fabulous treasures in europe I think at that time, which really started in 1942-43, the officers were most concerned about damage and destruction, and we were only just becoming aware of the scale of looting that had taken place in Europe.
0: The scale was unbelievably huge, wasn't it? I gather tens of thousands of pieces stashed away.
1: There was a huge amount of art stolen, and it was stored because Hitler's museum at Linz wasn't yet built and so it had to be stored and as the war turned against the Nazis they started placing a lot of their cultural heritage and the looted cultural heritage in mines principally salt mines because they are a better disposition to store works of art um, but even then they had to have pumps and air conditioning units and people looking after it and maintaining the art while it was there And Goering, he was just an avaricious looter and he he just stole it for himself and his own personal benefit and took it to his own estate at Curran Hall.
0: And is there still a lot of work from that period missing?
1: There's a huge amount of art that is still missing from the Second World War. And it's only recently that a lot of this data has been able to be digitised. So you've got organisations like the Art Loss Register, checking auction catalogues and dealer purchases to try and identify that art when it bubbles back up to the surface, as inevitably it does. Someone who's grown a collection in the 1950s and 60s and then their family have inherited it, they might need some money and they've sold it or maybe they've even donated it to a university, the alma mater of the person who'd made all the money and put the collection together. And when these things happen, collectors and the managers of cultural property institutions are becoming much more adept now at understanding the provenance, the history of the objects in their collection. Where have they come from? What has their history been and where have they been? So you match up that kind of data with the data that's held for example, by the Art Loss Register, which a lot of it is about the information to do with works of art stolen in the Second World War. And between the two, you can start to identify some of these works of art. And you read the art press and almost every week, works of art are being identified.
0: That's fascinating. And has this been going on for centuries? Have we lost lots of incredible parts of our history through the conflicts over hundreds of years?
1: Yep, there's no question, I think, that that is the case. And armies in the 17th, 18th and 19th century, they enriched themselves and their countries by looting. And that many of these cases are now being discussed in the media now, because many of these objects have ended up in national museums in many countries in Western Europe. And so those issues are now having to be addressed by the museums and the governments concerned with regard to the restitution or the long-term loan of objects back to the countries from which we looted them.
0: Gosh, there was an example of that recently in the papers, wasn't there? And I'm struggling to remember exactly where it was. Was it Ghana? In
1: Ghana, Ghana. the British Museum and the VNA have just agreed a long-term loan of objects in their museums, which are being returned to Ghana for a period of at least three years.
0: Did we take them, Tim? (laughs) And shouldn't they be given back if they're Ghanaian?
1: Well, it's not for me to say.
0: <laughs> but are there rules that mean it's not as simple as that? And-
1: it's it's not as simple as that. I mean, it should be as simple as that, one would say, but it's never as simple as that. It's a question of how these objects were acquired by the institutions that have them, and then what are the rules governing the deaccessioning of objects which are held in their collections. And some of our national museums, and probably that some of the national museums across Europe, are bound by the law which says that they cannot deaccession their objects without a change in the law.
0: You mentioned at the beginning when you were in Estonia, you touched on the Ukrainian Armed Forces and some help for them. When a conflict is going on with such ferocity as it is there now and a massive humanitarian crisis, lives being lost every day, what can be done? What are the points that can be done to help save some of the heritage and the culture that is also being lost alongside lives?
1: A significant amount of the protection of cultural property in armed conflict happens before the armed conflict happens. People have made plans and they've done the necessary protective measures or taken those measures in order to protect the cultural property, particularly mobile cultural property which can be moved out of danger zones, perhaps, to uh, secure sites, refuges where they can be protected better away from the conflict, but structures themselves are in a a much more tricky position because those can be deliberately targeted or they can be collateral damage from attacks that are happening nearby. In the Second World War, and we've seen more recently in Ukraine, many of these monuments have been sandbagged up to afford some kind of protection from artillery fire and from long-range rocket fire and airdrop munitions. But in certain conflicts, and Ukraine is probably one of those, where one of the parties is intent on destroying the cultural property, the culture, the nation, the fabric of that nation, and those acts are war crimes, when a, a state is intent on carrying out war crimes, it's very difficult to stop them doing that. The law is there to deter them, but the law is not on the the law is on the battlefield, but it's not there. It can't stop them on the battlefield from taking the actions that they're taking. What the law can do though, is it can make people accountable after the fact. Now that doesn't save the cultural property which the offender has damaged, destroyed, and looted. But it does mean that at a later date, if these people can be bought, to account, then they can be prosecuted under international humanitarian law. For example, the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia prosecuted a number of individuals for war crimes relating to the shelling of Dubrovnik. More recently, in Mali, Ahmed al Faki Al-Mahdi was convicted and sentenced to nine years at the International Criminal Court for offences relating to cultural property war crimes committed in Timbuktu. So people can be brought to account for their offences. And indeed, go back further in in the Second World War, the Nuremberg war crimes trial. If Hitler and Goering had been alive, then they would have been prosecuted, or or Goering was prosecuted for one of the crimes was offences against cultural property. And Alfred Rosenberg was executed at Nuremberg in part for the war crimes committed against cultural property.
0: It really is such a fascinating subject. And you set up the special unit that I referred to in the introduction, I think it was 2018. And I gather the setting up of that unit began with a question in Parliament.
1: Well, it began with this book here in front of me, The Rape of Europa by Lynn Nicholas, which I was given to review in 1994 by the um, MOD's um, magazine. So I reviewed that book and that sparked an interest in cultural property and its protection. I read a lot of books about Monuments Men. We're sitting here in my sister-in-law's office, Neville Keating Pictures, where I worked for four years. So that's in the family as well. And I worked for 12 years in part for the Art Loss Register. So I bought all that information with me together when I, I was sitting in army headquarters and I I was working at the time in renewable energy. And I'd written an article in a magazine called the British Army Review about how we should be using more renewable energy on operations and on our bases. And this was back in 2013. And I thought I owed the magazine a, a sort of a duty to flick through the rest of it and see what else was interesting in the, in the magazine. Of course, there was a far more interesting article than mine and it was by Professor Peter Stone from Newcastle University and it was all about what we in defence should be doing about the protection of cultural property during armed conflict. I read the article, was completely fascinated by it and those three experiences I brought to the beginning of that article that I'd got from before, from reading the books, from working in the company and from this association with our family company, meant that I had a real interest in it. So I rang up the professor and literally after i read the article, and he now t- tells a story about how he almost fell off his chair, that someone from the army was calling him up, saying that they could do something about this. And I was in the perfect place. I was working in the concepts branch at army headquarters, looking 20 years out at what the environment was going to look like for the army in 20 years and how we were going to reshape the army to meet those challenges. So I was doing media operations, information warfare, and cyber warfare. That's a whole long distance from cultural property protection. But my boss, Tim Law, when I asked him, said, go write a paper on it. And that was our job, to write a paper about new capabilities. So I wrote the paper, and it circulated around the army as as the way these things do. Got to the top of the army, and I was patted on the head and said, good job, Tim. No resources. (laughs) But at the same time, there was more of an interest growing outside. The Syrian conflict was happening at the time and there was pressure on the government, David Cameron's government, to do something about it. And there were votes in parliament about, shall we put boots on the ground in Syria? That vote went no. And so the government was, I think, looking around for other things that it could do. One of those things that it could do was ratify the Hague Convention and its two protocols because Tony Blair's government in 2004 had said, we'll ratify the convention when we find the parliamentary time. So dial that forward to 2016, the government found the time to, to do that. And the good thing about the 1954 Hay Convention in UK politics was that both sides of both houses of parliament had been lobbying the government to ratify the Hay Convention. So there was overwhelming support in parliament for this to happen. And I was... Sitting in the office, in fact, one door away from where we're sitting now, when I had a call from the army secretariat at army headquarters, that's never a good thing. It's usually, <laughs> usually and I'm, you're in I'm, bother. A, I'm a serial <laughs> offender. And um, and I thought I was going to be in big trouble. I said, yes, this is Lieutenant Colonel Barberic. We think you can help us with a question that the Secretary of State uh, has got an urgent question in Parliament. And you know the answer. My head was just like, what the heck can I possibly know that Secretary of State, for Defence wants to know about this question in Parliament.
0: No pressure there then, Tim.
1: (laughs) No pressure, exactly. And I said, well, what's the question? And they said, well, what are we doing in defence about protecting cultural property right now? And I said, well, the answer right now is we're doing nothing. But we can't have the Secretary of State for Defence standing up in Parliament. It was Sir Michael Fallon at the time, a classicist from St Andrews University, and we can't have him stand up and say we're doing nothing because that's not an answer that defence secretaries give to questions in Parliament. And so I said why doesn't the Secretary of State say, bleh? And I gave them a form of words. (laughs) 24 hours later, the Secretary of State was standing in Parliament and more or less, word for word, out came the answer that I'd given to the Army Secretariat. And part of that answer was Defence will establish a military unit of cultural property protection specialists. So I kind of seen this massive influence opportunity because I knew that if the Secretary of State for Defence said it in Parliament, then it was going to happen. And so Defence went, oh my goodness, the Secretary of State for Defence has just signed us up to start a new unit. And they went, Army, Navy, Air Force, which one of the three is going to encounter more cultural property? And it's going to be the Army. So that order came down to Army headquarters. And my boss's boss was a brigadier at the time called Roly Walker, who's about to become the chief of the Army general staff. He'd been very supportive of the paper. And he kind of looked at me across the desk and went, Tim, this is your fault. I want you to go downstairs to the Directorate of Information and I want you to run through the establishment action for this unit. So that took about a year, 12 months to do all that activity of lining all those sort of ducks up. And then the unit was established in 2018 and I was lucky enough to be selected by the Army Personnel Centre as the first boss of that unit for a three-year tour.
0: You put that unit together. What kind of different experts were you looking for when you put together the team? Because one would imagine that some expertise in various things, whether it's art or archaeology or crime investigation is required.
1: You're absolutely right. It quite quickly transpired that I needed to put some criteria in place because there were some people who contacted me with their hearts completely in the right place and and said almost, I once visited a museum, please can I join? That wasn't Um, me too. (laughs) And that wasn't really the go for it. So we put in, or I put in some criteria. You've got to have a relevant degree. You've got to have worked in that, because these were all reserves, got to worked in it in your civilian occupation for at least five years, and you've got to be doing it still today. So those criteria tended to narrow it down rather a lot. Luckily, inside defense, my successor, Commander Roger Curtis of the Royal Naval Reserve, he had stalked me for a while, as had Professor Adrian Parker from Oxford Brooks University, who's a senior archaeologist. Uh, and Rogers works a structural Building Surveyor for Historic Environment Scotland, and a number of others sort of came and when they heard it was happening, had got in touch with me. So I started with, if you like, a base of people who I knew we could bring in. But there was a, a slightly nervy moment when I was sitting with the then Minister for the Armed Forces in Rome in the Ambassador's Residency, and Anna Summers-Cox, who founded the art newspaper, wrote an article and she was in the audience when we were doing this sort of press thing and said, Lieutenant Colonel Tim Perbrick by himself in his own unit. And it was embarrassingly true, because at that time, you can't just throw people across. You can in wartime. But in peacetime, when you're arranging these things, we had to go through all the right channels to ensure that all the right people came into the unit. And that was quite difficult for those two I just mentioned, Roger Curtis and Adrian Parker, because one was in the Royal Naval Reserve and one was in the Royal Auxiliary Air Force. So they were coming from different services into this army unit. so that. Kind of stress tested the system somewhat as we engineered that process to happen. It may seem to outsiders as kind of strange that that's the way we have to address things. It takes a long time to do these processes, but we got there in the end. And I think probably by the time I finished, we had maybe 10 officers in the unit and we delivered what I call a cultural property protection special to arm course down at Southwark Park in Hampshire which is the headquarters of the Royal Military Police. And we had about 30 officers from across Europe. So it was very much a NATO course, helped by in its delivery by Dr. Paul Fox, who at the time was working for the Blue Shield, which is an NGO that looks at cultural property protection during armed conflict. And we put together this course and delivered it. And it was a bit of a wing and a prayer, but it it seemed to go down more or less all right. The idea was you can't just take people from parts of the armed forces without training them to deliver the capability they've got. So a lot of the lessons that I learned delivering that course were taken forward to the UNESCO course that I then designed for the Ukrainians last year, specifically for their military unit.
0: I know you've set the unit up and you're not part of the unit now, but is some of the work done during conflict? So presumably your team has to be expert as well in tactical operations.
1: Yes, that's absolutely right and a very good point. But not only do you have to be able to go and visit cultural property and assess its damage and record its damage and maybe bring in the military police because you think it has the potential to be a war crime site and military lawyers as well as maybe your engineers and you need to bring in military engineers who have an empathy and sympathy for cultural property. It's not just add a thousand tons of concrete here guys, we need some experts in our military engineering capability to do that. So you've got to be able to assess cultural property to report it back to the civilian authorities. And the important thing is that we are there as military officers to cooperate with the civilian authorities. It's not our cultural property, generally, unless it's our country, but it's the responsibility of the civilian authorities to manage the cultural property that's in the middle of this war. So we also have to be staff officers. So you need staff training that is when you're sitting in a large military headquarters and they're making plans, you need to make plans which support their plans. So if we're going round that way, round the right to hit the objective, then what cultural property is on that route and what cultural property is in the objective and how are we going to minimize the damage to that? Because it's covered by the law. And this is where you bring your military legal advisor in to advise you about individual criminal liability and command responsibility. So some very serious decisions have to be made by military commanders when they're addressing cultural property protection as an, as an issue because and, of the law.
0: And when you are in different countries and you're working alongside communities, does protecting heritage and culture help win hearts and minds with the people who actually live there and are presumably under attack at that point?
1: That's a very good point. And I think that you're absolutely right. When I first wrote the paper back in um, 2014, uh, which was delivering a military cultural property protection capability, we looked at all the reasons why we as armed forces should be addressing cultural property protection, because our job is mission success. We want to achieve our mission. That's what we've been given. So we'll do cultural property protection because the law tells us to do it. Whether we do more than what the law requires depends on is it gonna win us influence? Is it gonna support our reputation? Is it gonna increase the generation of human intelligence? Is it going to develop our force protection so people are not gonna brick us and I deliver improvised explosive devices? And is it gonna increase the knowledge of a cultural understanding of our force? It's gonna cut down illicit trafficking and it's going to afford the community a better chance of recovery post the conflict.
0: And sometimes, Tim, is the cultural property and the the looting, is there an element of money that then helps fund terrorists? Or is it used almost as a weapon by the aggressors sometimes financially?
1: I think that that's probably right. The art looting investigation unit in the Second World War were very keen that the Nazis did not use funds generated by the sale of the looted cultural property to continue the war in the so-called Alpine Redoubt. So it would help finance that. I think in the sort of isis dash era, we were very concerned that looted artworks were making their way into the international markets to the benefit of ISIS and Dash during that time. I think that probably what is required, because No one really knows, I don't think, but what is required is for some significant intelligence work to be done by national agencies and supporting authorities to really bottom that one out. How much cash is generated during armed conflict by an adversary or a terrorist organization that supports their nefarious activities? And I think that one remains to be bottomed out, but the general feeling is yes.
0: A thought that popped up in my mind was ethnic cleansing as well. And I was just trying to find the example that I'd written down. You slightly touched on that, not using the phrase ethnic cleansing. But again, it can be a weapon in a way, can't it, against a culture and against a people. With things like the blowing up of the two giant Buddhas by the Taliban in Afghanistan, it can be a direct attack on the people who are being fought.
1: Completely. And many adversaries are intent on destroying wholly a people and removing them from the area in which they've been living for maybe thousands of years, and their culture is all around them. So they not only try and kill all the people, they then destroy the structures that support that culture. And that's a very worrying trend. I'm not saying it's new. It's probably happened forever.
0: We don't really learn the lessons of history, do we, very often?
1: Sad truth. We never do. In probably, And that applies to everything in life. We should all read more history.
0: Yeah, I have started reading a bit of history now and I've got quite addicted to it. I've never had time before, but it is addictive when you get going. I'm just touching on the film again, just because it was the first time that kind of thing, cultural heritage came across my radar, The Monuments Men, and I love films that are based on true stories. Do you think it helped bring the subject to life and to people's attention? And I gather George Clooney got fascinated by it as well, didn't it, himself?
1: I think that's right. George Clooney bought to life a book by Robert Edsell called The Monuments Men. Robert Edsell's Texan tech, I, I'm going to say multi-billionaire, but you can jump in there and correct me, <laughs> uh, Robert, when we next meet up. And he did a fantastic job, Robert, of raising the profile of the work done by the Monuments, Fine Arts and Archives branch, particularly the American side. And they got the, I think it's the Congressional Gold Medal. I'm probably going to be slightly wrong because there are different ways of saying that. But he was the one who started that. And it was his book that George Clooney read and then turned into the movie Monuments Men. It's a movie. It's not a documentary. So you'll find the hardcore academia going, it's a load of tosh and you know should never have reached the screens. But it was really good, as you've just highlighted, in raising the profile of the work of this very small, I mean, there were 50 Brits involved in it in, during the actual war. A very small, but I think very effective unit in the Monument Fine Arts and Archives branch. And the lessons that they learned were written up by Sir Leonard Woolley at the end of the war. And that was, for me, a real handrail into how to establish and run a military cultural property protection unit, because those lessons that were learnt in the Second World War are as real and live today as they were then.
0: What was the most valuable lesson, do you think, if you could pick out one that you took away from that?
1: Get the right people every time.
0: Get the right people every time. Now, you've always had to get the right people, because I'm going to take you back in time now. I remember Desert Storm and the liberation of Kuwait, because I was a very young presenter on Sky News during the first Gulf War, which was back in 1991. I can't believe that is actually more than 30 years ago, and I dread to think what naive questions I may have asked of various guests in those days. But you were a 27-year-old captain in the Royal Lancers when you were deployed. What memories do you have of that time, and even from the beginning of you flying into the desert?
1: It's always a strange thing, flying from a relatively safe place into a relatively unsafe place. I remember a few years later in 2007 when I got up in the morning at home and and went to sleep in Iraq being rocketed by the locals. So that was a bit of a shock. In the Gulf War, we flew into Duran and and we established ourselves in the dockside at Al-Jubbal. It was steamingly hot there. We were drinking bottle after bottle of water. And it was about a week later that our tanks arrived and we deployed out in the desert. And we had almost six months of training that we could do in the desert so we could familiarize ourselves with living off our tanks, working with each other, cooperating with all the different arms, artillery, engineers and infantry as to how we were going to do our attack and where that was going to happen. So it was a a very formative process for me as a young officer, Uh, had a great team around me. I was actually from the 17th, 21st Lancers and we had a squadron attached to the Queen's Royal Irish Azars battle group under Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Denaro, who retired some years ago as a general. And for me, the two things I remember most were my crew getting what I think is probably the longest direct fire kill. And it's nothing to be that proud of because it is a kill of other people and equipment that you're doing. But that was 4,700 meters away from, from us, which is shade over four times the battle range of the tank and a shade under three miles. I mean, it was a, just an incredible a shot, a testament to the skills of the gunners, Gus Davidson, who did that. And then on the final day of the Hundred Hours War, which someone had come up with, apparently, in the White House and said, this war is going to be 100 hours long. I can see the clock ticking. And can so see we the were movie
0: titled Hundred Hours War. <laughs> yeah.
1: We, we were about 40 kilometers away from our final target, which was the Basra Road, the, the road that came out of Kuwait City to uh, Basra in southern Iraq. And we had to get there in an hour. That, I like to think now, is 600 of us. So there were 150 tanks, 600 soldiers, and we did the longest and fastest cavalry charge in history which sort of takes us back to Crimea and the charge of the light brigade but this was charge of the heavy brigade and luckily we didn't meet any well we did meet russian guns because when we got to the end of the charge there were some russian guns owned by the iraqi army embedded happily pointed the other way and unmanned so those were the two major experiences i brought away but again it's all about the people that you're with and we still meet, and we will in two or three weeks' time have a dinner together of the officers of the battle group of the Queen's Royal Irish where we meet every year.
0: That's fantastic. And you did eventually liberate Kuwait, didn't you?
1: We did liberate Kuwait, yeah.
0: And wasn't there a rogue camel herder in enemy territory? I've heard you talk no, about. <laughs>
1: <laughs> D Squadron of the Queen's Royal Irish battle group was under Major Toby Madison, who won a military cross in the war we were leading, we were the point for for the battle group. And the battle group was the point for the division. And the division was the point for the Corps. And the Corps was doing the attack. So we we were absolutely at the front. And as we started the advance, we'd probably got about half an hour across a desert. And there's a camel herder coming across the front of us. And we all just stopped and let the camel herder weave his way across the desert past us before we started again. So, Camel Herder was responsible for delaying the advance of the Allied liberation of Kuwait by about 20 minutes.
0: A naive question, but do you actually live in the tank when you're on those operations or are you in tents next to your tank?
1: You live off the tank. It entirely depends what the circumstances are. For the first 48 hours of the war, we were nodding off in position in our crew seats where we were. On the first night of the combat action we were involved in, it was chucking it down with rain and sand was blowing up everywhere. Couldn't really see anything. Had to turn our lights on, our convoy lights on to see the tank in front. We ended up in a line and then this enormous sound of artillery started up and we thought we were being shelled. So we shut down the lid and have a look around and I saw behind me the artillery from the multi-launch rocket system had opened up and they were landing about two, three kilometres in front of our position. And we got out and stood on the back decks in the rain and just an incredible fireworks display of lethality going over our heads and landing on the enemy positions in front of us and made it easier the next day.
0: Well, yes, I'm sure it did. When you say living off the tank, what does that mean?
1: We do have a bivvy, which is like a tent that you attach to the side of the tank. And then you put your four sleeping bags in there. And that's where you can live in. There's a cooker that you can set up next to the tank and and operate that. There's something called a BV, uh, a boiling vessel. It's the most crucial piece of equipment in a tank. It makes you hot brews all the time, or you can be really foolish and have the on-tank toaster, which is an ammunition box with the element from a kettle taken out, I mean, this thing reaches 200 degrees in about five seconds and you have it in your tank surrounded by all your ammunition. I mean, it's just you couldn't make it up for risk (laughs) management. Uh, And then you can have your egg butties on toast and and things like that. Oh, my
0: goodness. I think as well when an article I read, you said when you flew in the cockpit of a jet, you flew down the Nile and you remember seeing the pyramids. And I mean, what a strange entry into all that. And as a young tank commander and talk about cultural heritage flying over the pyramids.
1: Well, all these things are very surreal. And you think later in my life now. were these formative events, when you saw these things and they sort of lodged with you and, and later on they come back. And I was very pleased to finish, well, to do my tour in Estonia where there were tanks. And I went down to Tapa, where the British battle group is, and I had a photograph with a, a young officer who's their squadron leader for the Queens Royal for Sea Squadron. And 30 plus years ago, his father was with us in the Queen's Royal Irish Azars battle group. And so on the kind of bridge, the old bridge <laughs> that straddles that 30 year <laughs> gap from father to son in the Queen's Royal Azars. What Quite a, a lovely
0: collection. Now so, you have been decorated, unlike the Monuments Men who'd waited a long time to be decorated. What did you get the OBE for?
1: Well, you never see the citation, so ah. I can't really tell, but I understand it was for work relating to the uh, cultural property protection done at army headquarters.
0: But there was a little bit of showbiz glamour in your receiving of your award, wasn't there?
1: Well, yes. I got the details of when I had to uh, turn up to Buckingham Palace to receive the award. And the date that I was given was a date that, if you like, the Queen was already sending me on military duty to Italy. So I rang up the orders of chancery and I said, look, is this going to be a problem? Should I cancel what I'm being sent on? And they said, no, no, there's a there's plenty of time. When would suit you? And I'd heard that Kira Knightley had got an OBE as well. And I said, um, when's Kira getting her <laughs> OBE? And when they stopped laughing, um, they said, Tim, that'll be December. And I said, December's the one for me. So when I got there, dressed up in all my finery, one thing is you, you don't wear your medals because the medal that you're receiving can't be outshone by the ones you've already got. So you don't wear your medals, but you're still in your full blues with pooch belts and gold and metal chain mail on your thing and ribbons and spurs and what have you. And I walked up to Kira Knightley and I said, You're the reason I'm here.
0: Oh I bet <laughs> she, was lovely, nice was she? she was lovely, wasn't she? You met her in the was is it the painting? The painting gallery. Yeah,
1: painted gallery. I think where we kind of go before you go to receive your award from his royal highness the prince of wales as it was then now the king
0: fantastic now i know that you're busy writing at the moment and one of the things you're writing is a book centered on russia's amber room i would imagine if you came to me with a book title the amber room i'd actually commission you to write it tim because it sounds like it's going to be fascinating what is the amber room and what's going on with your book
1: well the amber room was a beautiful room constructed of panels of amber with embedded jewels. And initially it would be made for the King of Prussia. And I'm sure some historian will correct me quite swiftly if I'm getting this wrong. But then he gave it to the Tsar of Russia, who installed it at a palace, St. Catherine's Palace, just outside St. Petersburg. It was hugely admired. I mean, they go in there and open the shutters and, and it's glowed with a go- beautiful golden glow. It was almost one of the world's great wonders. And in the Second World War, the Russians tried to remove it before the Nazis got there, and they'd crumbled a few of the panels. Then the Germans showed up, and they removed it in 48 hours. They'd completely taken it down, packed it away carefully, and taken it. And thereafter, it gets a bit of a sort of cloud as to what happened. I think it went to Konigsberg in East Prussia, which was then blown up, uh, Konigsberg Castle, blown up by the RAF, and then destroyed by Russian artillery, and... Maybe that's where the Amber Room met its end, but we don't actually know. So I've written a thriller. That's probably too grand a name, but I've written a book about how it was stolen, what happened to it and what the Germans did with it and how other people were involved in it. So I've written this book. It's just waiting for a publisher or a movie. Or a movie. Well, I've been watching
0: too much Jack Ryan. That's probably why I can actually see it already on the screen. It's fascinating. And you're writing an important booklet. For UNESCO too, aren't you?
1: Well, I'm doing it of my own volition as well. I'm trying to write down all the things that I've learned from the time I've been involved in cultural property protection, which started in 2014, all the way through my time establishing the unit and running it and in UNESCO. And I hope that it will be, if my pen doesn't run out of ink, it'll be a useful publication for other armed forces to consider when they're looking at the issues and challenges around cultural property, protection in wartime, occupation, and across the spectrum of armed conflict.
0: Gosh, you really have brought this subject to life for me, Tim. I'm so glad to have met you and that you agreed to do the podcast. I did warn you in advance that our final question to every guest is about risk, and I would imagine you'll be a little bit spoilt for choice, but what is the biggest risk you've ever taken?
1: Going to war. What could be a bigger risk than going to war? But in the armed forces, we train all the time to prepare to go to war so that when that war happens, it's less of a shock um, both psychologically and in terms of training and your ability to deliver when you're actually under fire and do carry out and continue the jobs that you've been allocated. So I've been shot up lots of times. I suppose the principle, I've been to Northern Ireland, the Gulf War, former Yugoslavia, Iraq, Afghanistan, and more recently Estonia. Estonia was lovely. It was a great operation. I was living in a wonderful apartment in Tallinn and shopping in a supermarket. No one was trying to kill me. And I got a lovely medal from the Estonians. So very grateful to finish that tour with tanks, cultural property, and doing a media operations role. So the three strands of my military career came together at the end.
0: And of course, the most important thing is that you are in one piece, because I'm sure your life's been on the line on numerous occasions. Was there ever a moment where you thought, this is it? My luck's run out or...
1: Luckily for me, probably not. That was only because I was probably too stupid to recognise the situation I was in.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and too young, perhaps. And to- too young. You're very
1: young and naive. We need lots of young people in, in our armed forces. Now, when you're young, you're invincible. Nothing's ever going to kill you. We need lots of young people in our military, particularly now there are dangers in Europe right now that we need to address and face.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure, as I knew it would. I think you were joking about whether you meet the criteria for the podcast, but you meet it in every way. And in my book, you are the George Clooney of cultural property, the real George Clooney of cultural I property. I look forward to
1: meeting George and, and having a discussion about that. I've now gone back to being Brad Pitt in Fury with with my last post in the army. So I just moved from movie star to movie star. Well, I'm very lucky. I was expecting
0: such a Hollywood theme in our chat, <laughs> but we have had Kira, George, and now Brad. So uh, thank you very much much tim thank you you've, you've been listening to lieutenant colonel tim Perbrick, former commanding officer of the british cultural property protection unit and uh, a real life monuments man in some people's eyes download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search the convex conversation on spotify stitcher apple and google podcast or wherever you listen to yours i'll be back next week with another great guest see you then